Uh, we're going to go ahead and transition into a time of teaching. So I'll invite my friend Ashley to come on up and read some scripture. This is God's word from Daniel, beginning in chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, church family. It is good to see you. Um, I feel like I was away and missed you, but I didn't. Uh, we traveled with a team that traveled to a conference this last week. Uh, I'm Aaron, uh, one of the pastors, if you're new. And so we traveled, we were gone, but I didn't miss a Sunday. I was here last week. And so uh, I'm just that much more grateful to be with you here this morning and uh, an opportunity to dive in and open God's word. If you are new, we are going through the book of Daniel. And uh, we're in maybe not just the most famous story in the book of Daniel, but maybe like the most famous story really in the Bible. Even people who aren't familiar with the scriptures, people who aren't familiar with the Bible, know of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, I will say this. I am so sad because I forgot my flannel graph board with the Daniel and the lions. We were traveling. We got back last night. I left it sitting in my office. I apologize. I repent in the dust of the earth. How am I even going to preach Daniel and the lion's den without flannel graph? Uh, I shall do my best. Uh, you guys can pray for me. And I want to just say one little thing. This is the last story, the last narrative story in the book of Daniel. Maybe for some of you, this is the last part of the book of Daniel that you are familiar with. We're going to go into some interesting uncharted waters beginning next week. And so I just encourage you to be praying for me, be reading ahead. I and I, I'm going to... Um, guess that you will have many questions if you just sit down and read uh, chapter 7 through the end of the book. Uh, and so if you have questions, feel free. You can always email them to me or just catch me after service and I'll try my best to address them as we go. But I'm excited uh, to get into those chapters. Before we do anything else today, can we just pray together? Uh, we need God in Daniel in the lion's den as much as we need God in revelations with beasts and, and rams and horns and all that. Amen? So let's pray. God, we come to you now. Not because we are righteous or good on our own, but because you have made us righteous through the blood of Jesus. And what an amazing privilege it is that we can come before you like this in prayer. God, I just confess there are times in my own heart and in my life where I uh, grow comfortable or just kind of complacent with the idea that the king of the universe invites us in to know him closely in friendship and in prayer. So I pray today, Lord God, we would experience your presence. It would not just be uh, learning or, or education today, but it would be 
heartfelt worship to you as we receive truth from your word and as we receive your presence in our lives. God, would you guard my lips and direct my words? I only want to say that which is truthful and helpful. And God, for each of us, would you give us a soft heart, a receptive heart? Break down our pride, break down our defenses. We want to know you as your children, Father God. It's in your name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. All right, I want to start with a question. I need to invite you into this. Uh, when you think about your routine, maybe there's those things that you do on an annual basis, those things that you do on a monthly basis, you know, certain you know, traditions, or even just something like on a monthly basis, you pay certain bills, certain things you do on a weekly basis, maybe you know, mow your lawn or something like that. What are those things that you, for the most part, do on a daily basis? So I'm going to ask you in a second. I'll start uh, just to kind of you know, prime the pump a little bit. I, on pretty much every single day, I read the Bible. And I know you're all like, well, that's good. You're a pastor. You should. And I do. You're, you're welcome. Pretty much every day. Um, I say I love you to my wife and to my children pretty much every day. I drink coffee. Not pretty much every day. Every day. The only, yeah, amen, right? The only New Year's resolution I ever made that I really kept was to drink more coffee. It was like three or four years ago, I made a resolution. I want to drink more coffee this year. And you guys, I am happy to report I killed it. I did great. Uh, less proud of, I, I check social media pretty much every day. Facebook, Instagram. I exercise most every day. Uh, I shower and I brush my teeth uh, pretty much every day for the joy of all of you and especially those who live with me. Listen to music, I listen to podcasts, I, uh, usually something related to sports, I'll watch sports or listen to sports radio most every day. So how about you? What else? What did I leave off the list? What do you guys do pretty much like every day? Drive. Oh, well, maybe it's that. Maybe you like driving. Okay, you like driving. Good. That's good. I shouldn't. I've betrayed my feelings about driving, especially in the Seattle area. What else? What do we do every day? Eat. How could I have forgotten? <laughs> when you have coffee, you don't need to eat as much. What else? Oh, uh, when you have coffee, you don't need to, you don't need to sleep either, but you, I'm glad you sleep every day. That's good. What else? Anything else? Lawn every day? The, oh, you got okay. It's, I have uh, I have betrayed my lack of help in the laundry department in our house, but I do take the garbage out most every day. What about you? What do you do every day? Dishes every day. Good kid. Good job. Well done. There's these different things that we do every day. Anybody else? Pray. Pray. Thank you, Aaron Lynn. And uh, we talk about this idea of prayer. I would like to stand before you. Now, I pray, but I I don't, like, pray every single day. Do you guys know what I mean? Like, I will say things to God, and I will talk to God, and I will pray, but but as far as, like, disciplined, Daniel-esque three times a day, like, I I wish I was there, and I'm honest, if I'm just being honest, I'm not there yet. God's growing me. I do love to pray, and I do talk to God, but, but... the real question this story brings up is if you were faced with like your life being on the line, what would be some of the first things to go away? What would you give up? Your life is on the line. You have to take some of these things away. Okay, so I would, you know, sports radio would go away pretty quick. Social media would go away pretty quick. Brushing my teeth would go away pretty No, I'm just kidding. 
But see, Daniel here, our brother, the thing that he will not let go of, the number one thing on his priority list is, I am going to spend time with God in heaven through prayer. So I want to talk to you today about this theme of prayer. And let me just back up a little bit and kind of remind us where we've been in the book of Daniel. We've seen this idea that the people of Judah are in exile. God redeemed the people of Israel. He, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into a new land flowing with milk and honey. And they, they made a covenant together. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I want you to live according to this covenant. And if you do that, I will bless you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. And over the centuries, yes, centuries, God's people, the people of Israel, were over and over and over and over again unfaithful to the covenant of God. And after centuries of grace and centuries of warnings through the prophets and centuries of long-suffering and patience and kindness from the Lord, he removed them from the land. And the people of Judah were taken into exile in Babylon. But even in that exile, God said, I'm not done with you. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not rejecting you. And God started teaching his people some lessons while they're in exile. And we've seen some of these lessons. Like exiles, if you're going to survive, you need to learn some lessons. You need to learn how to be faithful in the small things. Do you remember that in Daniel chapter 1? Where they were taken into exile. And these were teenage boys. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They were taken into into exile. and, and, And they were faced with this food challenge. Right? And then we're not going to eat the king's food. Ah, by the way, I don't know if you, do you guys know any teenage boys? How many of them are disciplined when it comes to food? Exactly 0.0% of teenage boys are that disciplined when it comes to food. But these young men had to learn to be faithful in the small things. In, 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 we also read from the prophet Jeremiah that they were to seek the welfare of the city. That they were not just to like hunker down and have kind of a survival mindset. They're actually to go on mission to love the people of Babylon and seek the welfare of the city. We saw in Daniel chapter 2 that they're to seek wisdom from God's word. Not from the astrologers and the magicians and all of the wise men. They were to, Daniel 3, they're to be courageous under pressure. Remember that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their Babylon, their Babylonian names. King Nebuchadnezzar says, everybody come to me, bow down, worship this statue. And they say, we're not going to do it. Our God, they say, they say, our God can save us. Our God will save us. And even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow down to your stupid statue, Nebuchadnezzar. So they had to learn how to be courageous. Daniel chapter 4, they had to learn how to abandon pride and pursue humility. They saw Nebuchadnezzar, the great tree, get chopped down, proverbially speaking. And, and while that was a lesson for Nebuchadnezzar, it was also a lesson for the people who were watching to abandon pride and pursue humility. Daniel 5, they had to learn how to live under the mighty hand of God. You remember the writing on the wall? And the hand comes and it brings judgment on the proud and the wicked, but it brings redemption for those who are, by God's grace, pursuing humility and trusting in him. And then today, we're going to learn the lesson that if you're going to survive in exile, you got you to pray. You got to be close with God in prayer. So we're going to pick this up actually in the end of chapter 5 because we saw this last week and I want to tie it together. Chapter 5, verse 30. So that very night of the handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede, so here's a new character, a new ruler. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And it pleased Darius 
to set up over the kingdom 120 satraps. That's a, like, a, like a local, regional sort of governor to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them, three high officials. So 120, you know, kind of lower level rulers and they're going to report to three guys of whom Daniel was one. Can we just pause for a moment and just like how remarkable is it that Daniel stays in a position of leadership from the Babylonian empire to the Persian empire? I mean, this would be like, this would be if, you know, Heaven forbid, like if, if Russia came and attacked the United States, took us over, conquered us, but then like left, you know, I don't know, you know, the, the, the secretary of defense in place because they didn't do a very good job defending us, right? Because Russia attacked. I don't know. It's like, like you'd look at that, like that is really remarkable that like a foreign country comes in, takes us over and, you know, Inslee is still the governor of Washington or just something like that where it's, how does this happen? But that's, this is God's favor on Daniel. So, these satraps, these 120, have to give account to Daniel and these other two guys so that the king might suffer no loss to help him rule the kingdom. Then this Daniel, get this, became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. All right, I want to pause and do a little history lesson real quick because this is a major event in world history. I actually was talking with um, my wife last night and one of my daughters, Mackenzie, are you, she's like learning about this in her history class in high school right now. Uh, this is a major event in world history, the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian Empire. If you look in the Old Testament, approximately 700 BC, King Cyrus was prophesied by Isaiah. God says, I'm gonna raise up a guy named Cyrus and he is going to bring judgment on Babylon, and I'm actually going to use him in some powerful ways, despite the fact that he is himself not a good guy. So Cyrus is widely known, both from the Bible as well as from world history, as the king of the Persian Empire who takes over Babylon, and now Persia is like the biggest, most successful empire in the world. We read about it last week, October 12th, 539 BC, Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon. And actually, this is kind of good news because Cyrus, in the year 538, the very next year, he sends the Jewish exiles home. This is awesome. The, 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 the Babylonian government, Nebuchadnezzar in particular, they were very centralized. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm going to be in charge of everything. Uh, think about like the golden statue. You all come to me and you bow down and worship at the feet of my statue. It's a very centralized approach to government. Cyrus and the Persian Empire did it differently. They said, y'all can go home. You all can go worship whoever you want to. This is to all these different nations. Just pay your taxes and don't do anything stupid or we'll come and kill you. And it was a much, more, uh, a much more generous, a much more liberal sort of approach to governing a giant empire. You can read about this in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me, get this, to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I'm going to build a temple for the God of Israel. This is Cyrus, king of Persia, modern-day Iran, saying, ah, we've got to make sure there's a temple built in Jerusalem. 
This is wild stuff, you guys. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So under Persian rule, the Israelites do a lot better. We see uh, Ezra here is going to have favor from King Cyrus. We see, if you read the book of Nehemiah, he gets favor from the Persian king Artaxerxes. Have any of you ever read the book of Esther? Esther becomes the queen of Persia with King Ahasuerus. And here we see Daniel and Darius the Mede. He's got a lot of favor. Like, it's actually a lot better under Persia. Not perfect, but better. All right, back to history. 522 BC, a guy named Darius the Great becomes king. Here's where the conundrum lies. We know from the Bible and from history that Cyrus is the emperor of Persia. We know that many years later, a few dec- a decade and a half later or so, a guy named Darius the Great becomes king. It leaves us with this question, who in the heck is Darius the Mede? Why is he the king? What's going on here? So, three possible explanations. First, our more skeptical friends and neighbors would say, well, this is just a fictitious character. This is something that the Bible authors just made up. There is no historical figure known as Darius the Mede. Cyrus was the king at the time. There's a later king named Darius. So some fool who helped write the Bible got him confused and accidentally called Cyrus Darius. So therefore you shouldn't trust the Bible or listen to what it has to say. We reject that. Okay. Uh, And I'll tell you why in a moment. Number two, some have said, well, maybe it's just a throne name for Cyrus. You know how sometimes kings have different names? And we've seen even Daniel is called Belteshazzar and Hananiah and, and all them, or you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The same is true with kings. Sometimes they have multiple names. So maybe Darius is just another name for Cyrus. Or third option, the one that I'm actually the most compelled by, is this Darius the Mede is not the king, not the emperor over all of Persia, but he's a regional governor over the area of Babylon. There's some pretty interesting scholarship. They, they debate. There's two different guys. There's a guy named Ugbaru and a guy named Guburu. Ugbaru and Guburu. It's like, it's like Shaquille and Shaquem Griffin, right? Like Seahawks fans out there. Like there's two different guys history tells us about. And maybe one of them was also known by the name of Darius. And they were a regional governor. I kind of think that because it says they received the kingdom. And if you look over in Daniel uh, chapter 9... It gives some more details in the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Oh, is that the, oh, I'm sorry, we have the typo on there, guys. So look it up. Daniel 1, it says he was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Either way, can I just tell you, we don't really know who Darius the Mede is. We're not entirely sure who he is. We don't have 100% certainty, historically speaking, but does that mean we shouldn't trust the word of God? You guys remember last week's Belshazzar controversy? Stephen Miller is a scholar. He says this, Although no text has yet been discovered that identifies Darius the Mede, numerous historical details in the book of Daniel have been confirmed. And it is reasonable to expect that the author was also correct at this point. As another commentator, Joyce Baldwin, warns, to assume that Darius the Mede did not exist and to so dismiss the evidence provided by this book is high-handed and unwise, especially in the light of its vindication in connection with Belshazzar, who at one time was reckoned to be a fictional character. At this point in human history, we're not really sure who Darius the Mede is. But God is true and faithful in his word. 
And I would urge you to trust it. If you are interested by this, I have a gift for you. I have three gifts for you. I have a seven-page PDF document on the church's website that you can download with selections from multiple commentaries about the different theories. And in those, they reference the scholarly works of two other people. So I have like a 20-page and a 30-page scholarly peer-reviewed article. If you want to just be awake all night tonight, reading about the possible identities of Darius the Mede, then I would love to serve you and love you in that way. Go to our website and download those. I want to move on with the story. Picking back up in verse 4. So these other high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. I think there's jealousy here. You know, 120 satraps and then there's three, but it says that Daniel still rises to the top. Daniel finds favor. Daniel gets elevated. So there's jealousy. Try to imagine a world in which some politicians didn't like each other and were jealous of each other. Just stretch your imagination. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was in him. Now you got to stretch your imagination. Think of a politician with no ground for complaint or any fault. So these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless, unless, here's our angle, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Babylon's gone. Persia's in charge. There's a favorable ruler, Darius the Mede. It reminds me that there's a line I remember hearing from the comedian George Carlin. He said, just because you got the monkey off your back doesn't mean the circus has left town. Daniel's still got problems. For no other reason than he is faithful to his God. Almost sounds like the words of Jesus in Mark 13 when he says, You'll be hated just because of me. It's also, by the way, a good reminder that, you know, election season's, what, a year away from now? And, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not here to talk specific American politics. I'm just going to say this. You could get the president you want, the senators you want, the Supreme Court justices you want, the House of Representatives you want, the governor you want. You get every earthly political leader that you want in place. It is no guarantee that things will go the way you want them to go. As Christians, our hope is in the kingdom of God and our eternal king, Jesus Christ. Amen? So we can want for certain political things to happen, but that is not where our ultimate hope lies. So these high officials and satraps came by agreement, or that word like conspiracy. They came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, all of us, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors, we're all agreed. Everybody thinks this, king. We all have this great idea for you. You should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions. So we know that Persia's got a more kind of liberal approach to religion, but just get this, Darius, just for one month. One month, let's just make it a little more centralized. Let's build you up. We all love you, Darius the Mede. Live forever. Live forever, buddy. We had this great idea to really kind of elevate you just for a month, and then everybody can go back to worshiping and praying as they see fit. 
So king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. You guys know about this? Like the, the, in, in the Persian empire, like the document, the law was king. In most empires, it's the word of the king that matters. But in the Persian empire, they would actually elevate the written law. It's actually surprisingly modern. So sign it. It can't be changed. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew, verse 10, that the document had been signed, he panicked and wrote letters to all of his senators and... No. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. Windows are open facing the city that he has not seen since he was 14, 15, or 16 years old. Psalmist in Jerusalem, if I forget about you, let my right hand forget what its function even is. Daniel's praying with the windows open, and and there's a boldness element here to be sure, but I actually think there's, there's a little... Just a side thing. You know how when we, when we pray, we always say things like, you know, heads bowed and eyes closed? I don't actually know where that comes from. The most biblical pattern of prayer, if you look, Jesus does it, all, all the patriarchs, people, they, it says they lift their eyes to heaven and pray. To look up toward the sky, to be reminded that God is great and glorious. I don't think there's anything wrong with closing your eyes and bowing your head. But here Daniel's got the windows flung open, facing toward the city that he hasn't seen in maybe seven decades. And he prays. He prays and gives thanks before his God as he had done previously. He got down on his knees three times a day. This is his custom. This is what Daniel does every day. And these men knew it. They knew where to find him. So they came by agreement, again, conspiracy, and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Friends, let me just say this. I love the Bible. I really love uh, one aspect of the Bible. The Bible is really honest with its depictions of the people in the Bible. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, have you ever read the story of Abraham? Like, Father Abraham, the the father of a nation, the recipient of God's grace, he was kind of a wuss at times and lied to protect his own skin about his wife being his sister. You You guys ever read about David? Ugh! Like, like, Jerry Springer show stuff right there. Like he, like the Bible is full of people who, yes, they're, they're, they're heroes of the faith. Yes, they're recipients of God's grace, but they're just kind of a mess with few exception. There are a few people in the Bible that God allows us to see it more or less in an ideal sort of a way. I think of uh, Boaz, the husband of Ruth. You read that story? I mean, he's just pretty much kind of perfect. I think of uh, Deborah, the judge in, back in the book of Judges. She's just kind of ideal. And Daniel is one of these figures. He is presented kind of as an ideal. And the secret to this, this longevity and this faithfulness is his prayer life. This is what's behind the scenes the whole time. Interpreting dreams, rising through the ranks, governing with wisdom. The reason why he's presented as such an ideal is because of his commitment to prayer. 
So verse 12, then they came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, oh, king, did you not sign a law? Like, we're just checking. You actually signed it, right? Did you sign it? You sent it out that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said to the king, well, Daniel, one of those exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. It's all about you, king. He's not listening to you or the injunction you have signed, but he makes his petition still three times a day. Now, this is fascinating. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. He's going through the law books. He's racking his brain. He's calling people, trying to figure out, how do I save Daniel? Oh, no. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Think about that. Like, that is favor. That is love. That's that's loyalty. That's, That's remarkable. So then these men came, again, by agreement, conspiracy to the king, and said, No, O king, I'm just reminding you that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. We're just reminding you Isn't it ironic that the very law that Darius signed that would elevate him to a divine status actually resulted in his enslavement? He thought this would raise him up and it has actually crashed him down lower. It's like... uh, it's like in the, uh, the movie Aladdin when Jafar's like, make me a genie, and then he's like, a genie, and then he gets like in a lamp. Guys, it's relevant. It's Persia, okay? It's Persia. Don't even, man, tough crowd. Verse 16, and the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Archaeologists tell it's like a pit. It's like a hole in the ground, kind of a cave that could be covered up and keep your, I don't know where you keep your lions, but that's where they kept their lions. The king declared to Daniel, listen to these words, you guys. This is phenomenal. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it like wax with his own signet and with the signet of his lords so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace. The king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. No food, no musicians, no young women from the harem. Nobody to come read him stories of his great accomplishments and conquests. He fasted and he did not sleep. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. Are you guys hearing all this? It's just it's amazing. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, 
whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. They need to find a different greeting, but they're all saying it. None of them live forever. But Daniel says it. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, and I have done you no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den, and Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it even ironic that what appeared to be Daniel's greatest liability, his prayer life, actually in the end becomes his greatest strength and an area of his vindication. Don't pray, Daniel, don't pray. Certainly don't do it before the windows. He could have closed the windows. He could have laid down. He could have found a quiet, private place to pray. But no, he prays publicly, boldly, before his God. He's 82, 85 years old. I've been doing it for this long. Doggone it, I ain't changing it. And he's thrown into the lion's den. And yet at the end of the day, that faithfulness and that commitment to prayer, to connecting with the God of heaven becomes his greatest strength. Isn't our God amazing at how he can take those things that the enemy uses for harm and turn them back around on our enemy's head and use them for God's glory and for our good? Our God is amazing, is he not? Verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of the lions, they, their children, and their wives. I know. Don't mess around with Persian politics is one of the side lessons we've learned here. I mean, it's, it's, it's really over-the-top language, but it's very common to find in uh, what you could call resistance literature from an oppressed people group when, when, when there's finally vindication, some of the language is pretty over the top. You can find that throughout history. Shouldn't surprise us. And before they even reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. I don't know. It seems like it must have been pretty dark in there. Stone rolled over the entrance. Daniel might not have been able to see. Just sitting there having the the purring of a lion next to you all night long. The prophet Jeremiah was, was also writing and speaking around the time of the exile, and, and he said some things about lions that, you know, the people of Israel might have been thinking about or Daniel might have even read about. Jeremiah chapter 50, Jeremiah says, this is the word of the Lord, that Israel is like a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. What the prophet Jeremiah is saying is that because Israel and Judah have been unfaithful for centuries, there will come a day of reckoning before the Lord. Judgment will come, and it will be like a lion versus a sheep. Now, I have been around a lion one time in my life. Last year when we uh, took a team to Uganda, at the very end of the trip, we went out on a safari, and out of the blue, the driver just yanks the steering wheel of our little, you know, 
Indiana Jones Jeep thing and pulls us off into like this bed of grass. We're like, where are we going? What are we doing? And we stop and he kills the engine. And about this far away from us is a mama lion laying there with a cub. And she wasn't even like all that big. She wasn't even growling. She was just breathing. And I was, the knots of my loins came untied. <laughs> like, like Belshazzar, right? Like just, whoo. Just, this is, you're in the presence of something serious. And God says, and if you, and also, by the way, I was in the presence of a sheep a few weeks ago. Totally different response. Didn't care. (laughs) Didn't care at all. Couldn't have been less concerned in the presence of the sheep. It was like, man, I'm like, (laughs) I just don't care. (laughs) What God says is when his judgment comes, it's going to be like that. There will be nothing that you'll be able to do. The, the, the judgment will come and, and God's people, Israel, will experience that kind of fear and that kind of dread like being in the face of a powerful lion. But remember what I said that God is still always working redemptively behind the scenes? Because in the very next chapter, Jeremiah 51, a promise comes. It says Babylon will become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. They, Babylon, shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lion's cubs, verse 44, but I will punish the Babylonian god Bel in Babylon and I will take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. How many times have we seen here in the book of Daniel that God is doing like direct, like very literal fulfillment of these prophecies that came from Isaiah and Jeremiah? You'll walk through the fire and not be burned. You'll be removed from the mouth of the lions. Friends, God has not given up on his people, Israel, and Daniel's vindication is the vindication of all of his people. So, verse 25, King Darius writes to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth. We've heard that before. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, People are to tremble and fear, not before my lions, but before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's another reason why I think Darius is a governor in Cyrus. But Here's the point. Daniel prospered. He trusted in God. He was vindicated. Daniel prospered. If you were around last year when we, uh, during the Advent season, I did a sermon on the Magi coming from the east to bow down at the feet of the newborn Jesus, the baby Jesus. You might remember that I explained to you that the Magi is actually the name of a Persian tribe. It's a tribe of Persia. Magi isn't just some random word. It's like, it's like the Babylonians had their tribe of the Chaldeans who led them in magic and astrology. The Israelites had the tribe of Levi who served as priests and led the worship. Well, the Persians had the tribe of Magi. And I just can't help but speculate that in this time of prospering, Daniel started to say, you know, there's going to be a king born in Judea one day. 
And there's going to be a, a star that shines brightly. And y'all should, y'all should pay attention. Y'all should watch for when this star comes because there's going to be a king born someday. I can't prove it. But it sure seems like these magi got these ideas from somewhere. Maybe from a faithful Jewish exile who was just bold enough to tell of the hope of the birth of the Messiah. I also think of another tribe, not just the tribe of the Magi. I think of another tribe. Because in Daniel chapter 1, you guys might remember this. It says, it tells us that among these exiles were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of, what does it say? Judah. You guys know about Judah? You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. One of his sons is named Judah. Judah becomes the tribe. And when, when um, Israel is at the end of his life, he's praying over and he's blessing his sons. And he says about Judah, he says, Judah is a lion's cub and the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will be the line of the kings. Judah is where the greatest king, King David and King Solomon, that's where they come from. And he says, Judah's going to be strong like a lion's cub. Which is why, after the birth of the promised Jewish Messiah, John, the friend of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, he has a vision, he has a revelation where he sees the resurrected Messiah in Revelation 5. And he says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. By the way, this is a side point. Originally, I wanted to do a Book of Daniel, Book of Revelation mega series. It would have been like four and a half years long. We just go back and forth between them because John the Revelator is drawing very heavily from the works of Daniel. It would have been amazing. Just pretend, imagine it in your mind. Oh, okay. But he's seeing this, this one, like Daniel was from the tribe of Judah, but there's one who's coming from the tribe of Judah who will be like a lion. This, get this. Okay, I already told you that Daniel's presented more or less ideally. Listen to this. Listen to this. Okay. Who am I talking about here? The rulers conspired against him. The leaders and the rulers conspired against him, but no fault could be found in him. And in the moment of his greatest trial, he turned to the God of heaven in prayer. Now, a local regional governor did everything he could in his power to save him, but ultimately had to sentence him to death. But even in that moment, he trusted in the God of heaven. He was placed dead for all intents and purposes into the ground and his grave was, oh, I don't know, sealed with a stone. Are you guys seeing this? But early, early in the morning... People ran to the gravesite and he was found alive. And then his vindication comes with authority and power over the nations of the earth. Friends, Daniel is nothing more than a loud neon flashing light prototype pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. This is unbelievable to me. This is amazing to me. And here's the thing. I told you that Daniel was good, but guess what? Jesus is better. Because Daniel was, you know, found alive, but he died again. Jesus is still alive. 
He got up out of the grave and he will never die forever and ever. He's alive forevermore. Daniel was rescued in this one instance, but Jesus promises that all who place their faith in him will be rescued, not just from the power of lions, but from the jaws of death itself and will be granted eternal life. And oh yeah, Daniel prayed a lot. Guess what? Jesus prayed more. Jesus was known throughout his earthly life and ministry for making loud cries and supplications. We're told that he would often withdraw to lonely places to pray. The night of his arrest and his betrayal, he goes into the garden and prays so earnestly that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. He dies in our place for our sins. He rises again victoriously. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and the majesty on high where do you know what he's doing right now? Hebrews 7 says he's praying for us. He is able to save to the othermost those who have their faith in him because he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, stands before God day and night, pleading our case before the Father so that we can know that our sins are forgiven and we're washed white as snow. How awesome is Jesus? Daniel's good. Jesus is better. Now listen, listen. I'm going to, in a minute, I'm not going to say it now, I'm going to, in just a minute, say that we need to learn how to pray more. I'm not saying it yet. I'm not saying it, okay? In a minute, I'm going to say it. Right now, what I'm saying is, Jesus is amazing. He's prayed for us. He is praying for us right now. All of our days are held in his hand. And as amazing as your prayer life might be, your hope should not be in your prayer life. Your hope should be in the lion of the tribe of Judah who prays day and night on our behalf before the Father in heaven. Okay? You guys with me? Please do not forget that. As I now say to you, exiles are only going to make it if they learn how to rely on God in prayer. Okay? We need to learn how to pray. We need to learn how to pray. Let me just share a little history real quick. We launched this church in 2015. And uh, by God's grace, we, the, the elders who were leading at the time, we sat down and we wrote down a list of values. We said, we want our church to be all about these things. We said, we want, we want to be all about sound doctrine. And then number two on our list was, we want to be people of prayer. And there's, there's nine values total, if you want to look them up on the website. But By God's grace, you know, we sit down sometimes as an elder team and we look at those values and God has been good to us. We've actually kind of stuck by our values for the most part. But we've made little steps along the way to say we really actually want to grow as people of prayer. At the end of last year, I really felt God stirring in my heart and some of the other elders really stirring in our hearts that 2019 needed to be a year that was focused on being people of prayer. And so we kicked off the year with a sermon on prayer if you hadn't listened to it, I would encourage you to you can go on our website and listen to it. We uh, set up a prayer team to not only be available after the services to pray with people, but to help send prayer requests to the elders because every week we meet on Tuesday mornings and we pray over the people of the church. Every week. Every week that we meet. And to host some prayer nights. We did, how many of you were at the prayer night we did over at Alderwood with a handful of different churches together? Okay, some of you. And then we've done one Just Sound City only prayer night in the offices. We're going to do another one here in October. I would encourage you to put it on your calendars. We said, God, we want to be people of prayer. We want to grow in this. We don't want to just have heads full of theology and good biblical knowledge. We want to commune with you in prayer. Back in, I think it was February or March, I heard about a conference that was happening 
kind of organized and led by a pastor and an author named Sam Storms. You might have heard me reference him before. Sam is someone who I deeply respect and greatly admire. And he's actually, uh, we've gotten to know each other a little bit from a distance over the last few years. Got to meet him in person at this conference. We just traveled there this last week. We were in a conference that was just all focused on the subject of prayer. And friends, can I just tell you what God did in my heart personally? God did something in my heart personally where I realized that, like, I believe in prayer. I believe that this is what God wants us to do. But there are times when I face situations in life where when I hit bedrock, what I really am trusting in is practical, pragmatic wisdom. Like, I believe that God is our healer. I believe he heals us. I believe he can and does heal us. But kind of, he showed me just in my own heart that kind of at the depths of, like, when it really hits bedrock, when rubber really hits the road, I'm trusting in doctors and medicine. And God started to do some stuff in my heart this week at the conference. Um, God started to remind me of some times in my life where practical wisdom, like, just kind of ran out. And I was thinking about this with Daniel and the lions, and right, like, King David... He fought a lion, but he had a rock. Like, practical wisdom, like, lion, yikes, rock, bam. Thank you, Jesus. Like, works. Samson, he had, he had his muscles when he fought the lion. Daniel's got nothing. Nothing. He's 85 years old. He's in the dark. Lions. Nothing. I believe in practical wisdom. I'm thankful that God gives us means of his grace. But when push comes to shove, you know, when you're in a Daniel type of situation, you got nothing else to rely upon. Will you rely upon God through the practice of prayer? God reminded me. God reminded me of when I was about 12 years old and I was at a friend's house and I got a phone call that my 19-year-old mentor who had invested in me was hit by a drunk driver and killed. Got nothing in this moment. And I remember even as a, as a young man, as an adolescent, being like, I, I need Jesus in this moment. I remember, I remember early in our marriage, uh, kind of in college years, when I was deeply enslaved to the sin of Pornography. And I had been in an accountability group and I had put filtration software on my computer and I had done all sorts of practical, pragmatic steps and I was still deeply enslaved and there were some really hard conversations happening from my wife and with me and I found myself at a place of I can't trust on software, I can't trust in an accountability group, I need God to show up and do something or I might lose my marriage before we've even really started remember being in my like mid to late 20s, a new pastor, and getting a phone call that one of my childhood best friends had lost their second infant to SIDS. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I remember, oh gosh, maybe seven years ago, praying with a friend, a a woman who's, you know, maybe at the time, mid-40s, a professional, master's degree, 
she is, and I'm not exaggerating, foaming at the mouth, writhing around on the floor of my office, screaming, F you, pastor, in full-blown demonic manifestation. I have nothing. I have nothing. I remember in 2014, becoming the campus pastor of Mars Hill Shoreline, right as the nuclear bomb of controversy and everything goes off, and just in the midst of all this swirling chaos and decisions that I didn't make, but I'm now having to explain, and I have nothing. I have nothing. I believe in medicine. I believe in counseling. I believe in spreadsheets. I believe in planning. I believe in wisdom. But there comes a time in pretty much all of our lives where you're left with just nothing. Practical wisdom isn't going to work and you're either going to despair or you're going to cry out and call on the name of your God. And if you're not there today, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus that you're not there today. Daniel didn't start praying three times a day on his knees before the open window on the day when the injunction was signed. He had done it for his life. And when that crucible came, when that moment of, I've got nothing, I can't do anything, there's no practical wisdom, when that came, he had developed a habit of throwing himself on the mercies of his God, which when we strip everything else away, is all that we really have. That's all we have. So, I don't know where you're at today. In all things in my life, actually right now, by God's grace, I'm in a pretty good season. I feel like the church is doing well, healthy, got some exciting things to share with you throughout the fall. Family's doing well. I love my kids. They're godly, good kids. My wife and I, our marriage is strong, and I'm feeling pretty good. But God in his grace reminded me this last week that how, I better not get comfortable and self-sufficient and prideful in that. I need to be putting into practice today what he is showing me in his word that Daniel did and what Jesus is doing for me right now, which is praying. And I know enough people in this church to know that some of you all are actually going through a really difficult time right now. And I'm thankful for doctors and I'm thankful for spreadsheets and I'm thankful for medicine and I'm thankful for all the gifts of God's grace, but he is the one at the bedrock underneath all of that. So here's what I want to do. I want to actually invite the musicians to come. And I want to just take a few minutes to pray. Sometimes we can get so used to just kind of First we sing, and then we do the welcome, and then we do the sermon, and then we take communion, and then we sing, and then we go home, and we just need to stop right now. We just need to pray. Some of you are facing real life stuff. And by the way, let me just say this. Some of you are facing real life stuff, but you're like, well, it's not, you know, death of a loved one. It's not cancer. It's not, you know, maybe it's, it's something smaller. Does God not notice when a sparrow falls to the ground and dies? Does he not care about everything great and small? Yes. Maybe in comparison to someone else's suffering, the trial you're going through right now, you're not locked in a den of lions with a rock over the top of it. But God knows, God sees, God cares. Don't let pride get the better of you and say, well, this is a smaller problem. I'll just handle it myself. Bring it to your father who loves you. 
you have no idea how much your God loves you. I have no idea how much my God loves me. We live in a time in human history and we live in a part of the world where we are just so predisposed to trying to make things look good. You know, stay strong, be wise, make good decisions. Sometimes God in his grace lets us just see that we have nothing except for him. Pete, maybe you just play quietly for a minute here and I'm just going to invite you. You can either close your eyes or you can lift your eyes to heaven, whatever you feel led. If you want to do something physical like kneel or, or just open your hands in like a posture of reception, I'm just going to take a minute. We're going to pray before we celebrate communion. Father God, we come to you right now. We come to you right now and we confess. God, I confess my own pride and self-reliance. God, I invite anyone else in that place today to join me in this prayer of repentance and confession. God, I confess that I have relied upon myself. I've relied upon my own wisdom, my own strength. I've relied upon gifts of your common grace instead of at the deepest part of my heart relying upon you. God, we bring our troubles to you now. We bring our hardships to you now. God, we know that this side of eternity, not every situation is going to resolve the way we want it to. But, but God, what if you just, what if you did want to bring your power in this situation. God, for those whose hopes have grown cold and dim, would you light a spark in their hearts right now? Our God can save us. Our God will save us. And even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust in you. God, I pray for those who are sick right now. God, we thank you for the gift of medicine and modern doctors and wisdom that they have, but God, all that comes from you. Forgive us for placing our ultimate hope in them and, and God, may we cry out to you and God, what if you even wanted to heal some people today? Would you forgive us of our skepticisms and our fears? God, for those who are facing deep relational difficulties right now, broken relationship that just got nothing, got nothing, except for you, which is more than enough. God, would you bring restoration? God, would you, would you help us to be persistent in our praying? Daniel, three times a day, all his life. Lord Jesus, you praying night and day, interceding for us before the Father. God, would you grow us in our persistence that we wouldn't just say a prayer for a situation and then move on with our lives? We'd just keep bringing it back to you and keep receiving your grace and keep receiving your strength and keep pleading our case before you. Lord God, would you help us to to grow in perseverance, not give up so easily? God, for those who are stuck in addiction, pray by the power of your spirit and the authority of Jesus that you would bring a breaking of those bonds right now. Alcohol addiction, drug addiction, sexual pornography addiction, whatever it might be, 
whether it's out in the open or secret, would you break it now by the authority of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who's roaring louder than any other lion that we might be facing? God, would you bring freedom and breakthrough? Jesus, we cry out to you. We've just got nothing. If not for you, you're all we want, you're all we need. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. Way off script here. Pastor Jamin. I love, uh, I love Pastor Jamin. We talked about this a little bit beforehand and said, hey, I'm going to probably just pray at the end and so can lead us in communion. Here's, here's what I'm going to ask. We'll invite our younger students class to come in and join us and stuff as well. But even as we kind of move forward into communion, like, don't leave this posture of prayer. In fact, we're going to sing a, a newer song here in a minute. Like, you can stand if you want, but sometimes it's just like, it's like Pavlovian. Like, oh, we're singing, stand. Like, just, maybe you just need to sit and just listen to the words of this song as they lead us in this new song and keep praying. Keep praying. Okay, Pastor Jamie, it's you. I apologize. I love you. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Pray with me. Father, we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful that you, you paid the ultimate price. Your body was broken. You sent Jesus, your son, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for us and our sins, Father. We're so thankful for that. And, and we want to take this, this time just to reflect that, that even though you're our foundation, you're our everything, you're our reason for being, you're the one who we, need, we get to go to when there are no answers. However, sometimes we don't turn to you. We turn to ourselves. We turn to sin. We turn to other things, Father. Other things you have created instead of turning, returning to the creator. Father, please forgive us. Let us sit here and feel broken and remember the depth of that sin, Father. At the same time, Father, help us receive the fact that we are forgiven. You love us with open, opening, open arms, Father, and forgive us, and forgive us over and over again, and we get to celebrate that, Father. We get to celebrate your grace right now, Father, that we are forgiven, and that is amazing. I'm so thankful for that, Father. Help us, help us turn to you when we have no answers and nothing else, Father. Help us rely on you. Help, help you be our foundation, Father, for everything we need. We thank you and praise you, Father. Amen. You can now receive your elements, and then after um, worship and rejoice with us, as the musicians start. Thank you.